Gente. Welcome to the Scene and Take podcast, a forum of all things that inspire and motivate me as a content creator and image maker. I'm your host, Indio the Gaiarican. Movie trailers make or break box office performance. With so much on the line, from major studios to the small independent filmmakers, telling your story and drawing the audience in two and a half minutes is a monumental task. Today, we'll take a look at the art of the movie trailer. Joining me to chop it up, see what I did there, is my good friend, writer, producer, and director of the feature film, The Trouble, Once Upon a Time in the Bronx, Zef Koda, everybody. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks for allowing me to crash your studio, bro. I appreciate time. In case you didn't know, Zef is also the host of a podcast, Film Scene. And of course, great minds think alike. So what we're going to do is start the conversation here on Scene and Take, and then we're going to finish it off on his Film Scene. So be sure to subscribe. You can find it at filmscene.net. Right. You have all previous episodes on there as well. I do. Awesome. So, yeah, we're going to start here and then we're going to end there. So be sure to, of course, follow me as well if you haven't already. So let's get down to business with the art of the movie trailer. What I wanted to talk to you today about, Zeph, is just how impactful movie trailers have been, at least the last few years, where people are seeking out movie trailers. Now it's no longer going to the movie theater and having to watch it. Although back in the day, people actually went to the movie theater to watch the trailer of, say, Star Wars or whatever. Now with YouTube and whatever else. Right. It's sort of an instant Ratification. Yeah. yeah. And then there's so many different ways that the quote unquote movie trailer is being presented with social media. You have the six second bumper, you have the actual two and a half minute movie trailer, but then you have the first version, then version two. So it's become in a sense, this subcategory within the industry that has made movies that much more marketable. And two, the success of a movie in the box office has been increasingly dependent upon the movie trailer. Yeah, that's a good point. And even on smaller tier films, independent films, films that are self-distributed, the trailer is still such an important force for the film and the success of the film and kind of draws people to the film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is an industry into itself. They have their own award show, the Golden Trailer Awards. That's interesting. Did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that, actually. I, yeah. When I saw that through research, I was like, wow, it makes sense. Because does, yeah. I want to watch it now. <laughs> right, the Golden Trailer Awards. Yeah. I believe just a few years ago, there was maybe 20 companies that focused on just movie trailers and that's what they did. Now there's over a hundred in the industry. Sure. And there's a couple that kind of lead the pack and that's Mark Woolen and Associates and Trailer Park, which I love that name, but that's like two companies within the hundred now that they've done trailers that essentially everybody else emulates from. So you do it once, then everybody else is like, oh, this is the hot thing. So they'll do that. When you think of a movie trailer, you know how you hear the the rise up the, yes. right? it's called 60 voices rising. And everybody has been using that, right? <laughs> it's like almost formulaic now, but at the end of the day, 
It has to draw you in. It has to pull you into a place where you're automatically going to say, my $15 is going to go and see that. And you have the power downs, the bass drops, the intricate sound design. And I know in your experience, and this is why I wanted to talk to you, there's been an evolution of it. And we'll go into yes, other aspects. There has of been it. an evolution of yeah. film trailers. And you have the distinct experience of having worked with IBM's Watson, artificial intelligence to create a movie trailer for a movie. Morgan, this was back in 2016? Back in 2016. Definitely wanted to get your insight on that because we have both the human aspect of it, which we'll get back into, but I really want to hear about your experience in working with the artificial intelligence in IBM's Watson to create this movie trailer for Morgan. And if you guys haven't seen the movie or the trailer for Morgan, you can check it out on YouTube. I'll leave the link in the show notes. But Morgan dealt with artificial intelligence too, the movie did. It was basically to pair Watson and the movie in a movie trailer was just like the thing to do. Zeph had firsthand experience with this because he worked with the team there. And I think it was 20th Century Fox, right? It was yeah. 20th Century Fox. So yeah. By the way, recently changed their name, I found out. Yes, they took yeah. down the Fox. They took down the Fox. They took down the Fox. It's only yeah. 20th Century. I like the sound of 20th Century Fox personally. Well, you know who bought them, right? Uh, Disney. Disney. Yeah. Wouldn't I love that to yeah. Or what not love on? to be Bob Iger, man. Yeah, yeah. Holy Yeah, smokes. I just listened to an interesting talk with him. So yeah, tell us a little bit about the experience having worked with 20th Century and Watson to create this movie trailer. What did it entail? Oh, so it actually was a really interesting experience because at the time I was working as a filmmaker for IBM and working really closely with the marketing team, which they do a great job. But we were out to dinner one night because I was doing a shoot in LA and the head of the marketing division that I was working with, she had asked me to, you know, she said, here's what's going on. This is a 20th Century Fox approached IBM about using Watson to create a movie trailer, right? And she said, but would you be interested in kind of supervising all the final editing because Watson and they disclosed this like r really well in the sort of documentary about the trailer, you know, so Watson selected all the scenes that would be used in the trailer. So Watson took this film with the brilliant team of IBM research scientists led by John Smith put sight on Watson mm. in essence okay. um, previously. And, you know, there, there's a whole team of people that they basically gave Watson sort of the analytics, like they fed Watson like a hundred different horror films mm -hmm. and, you know, to understand salient moments, like what are the happy moments? What are the sad moments? What are the like scary moments? What are, you know, from all these different movies from the past, like The Exorcist or Prophecy, all, all these different films. Right. Filling out those highs and lows of the movie. Correct. The Correct. And then, yeah, literally looking at graphs and data points. Right. You know, so Watson then was able to kind of make the hard part of an editor, you know, which is like that decision making like, okay, well, you have a feature length film that could be an hour and a half, could be two hours, whatever, but it condensed it down to just a few minutes worth of scenes. And it was pretty much a reel of scenes, right? you know, but it, it would have been scenes that I probably would have picked anyway, that a human, like an editor would have seen those and been Hey, yeah, those are the scenes. But I think as human beings, we kind of, especially when we have infinite choice, I think that sometimes that prolongs the process. So I'm sure, well, whatever the case would have been, that would, that process of what Watson did would have taken me a good amount of time. Like yeah. I wouldn't have done that in a day. Right. Like, but so Watson took 
those real scenes. And then I was able to then turn that into the final trailer. And then at the time, uh, 20th Century Fox, they sent a documentary crew to kind of document that process. And so they, they made it a, a great video, like right after the trailer. So you'll watch the trailer on YouTube and then you'll see kind of the process that, that I did with the research scientists. Right. So yeah, Watson was able to put everything into the ones and zeros, so to speak. Right. But right. the one element that Watson does not have is feelings, emotions. Correct. And that's a human characteristic. So how close though, did you feel when in feeling out for those highs and lows where there was tension, the movie, how close was Watson to when it gave you the stack of clips to what you eventually said, you know what, this was Oh, it was outstanding. Yeah. It was outstanding. It was incredible because I was taking mental notes as I was watching the movie at the, so at the time I didn't have access to the full movie after the fact I had a chance to watch the movie once because the movie had not been released. Right. So it was sort of a stringent process of to go there and watch it on this encrypted computer. And at the time that was controlled by the studio and just because they're very protective of piracy. So, you know, they're right, yeah, for sure, which totally understandable. And that's so, when the NDA was in full effect, all those, all those things, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I watched the film once, but I was just sort of taking some mental notes of, okay, that, well, that's a good moment. That's, you know, I wonder if Watson's going to pick that moment. That's an interesting mm, moment. And, okay. and it, and it did, it, it pretty much did. Again, I think the problem when you have infinite choice, one thing that I've learned and as I'm progressing to learn as a filmmaker and I'm listening to other masterful filmmakers is that limitations actually enhance creativity, you know? Okay. So a lot of times people give themselves a parameter or right. they'll give themselves a rule. For instance, you know, I learned recently that the Safdie brothers that did Uncut Gems, the way that they block their actors, mm -hmm. they let their actors, they don't give specific blocks to their actors. They say, okay, you walk around in the scene, right? And I know that they worked with a famous DP named Darius Kanji, legendary DP, did seven, did so many great films. Right. And, and I know Darius said to them for one of the scenes that they were shooting, there's like, you know, if we could just move the actor two feet over, then it would be amazing. They're already lit perfectly. And they're like, sorry, Darius. Like, that's like our rules. Like we, that's where the actor landed. We have to work it from this point. Right. And I think what Watson did that was sort of brilliant was, you know, it kind of narrowed down those choices. Like those were the choices that I didn't have to second guess. Okay. Are we going to look outside of these th three minutes? And I would have spent so much time. Any editor would have spent so much time like, well, should we just use this shot from there? Should we use the shot from there? It picked good scenes. And then those were my rules. Those were my parameters. I had to stick to those time codes to do the editing from that right. reel of scenes, okay. you know? So it's as if Watson was the perfect assistant editor, right. you know, but then I had to, according to us with this, this whole project, because Watson selected those scenes, I then had to use those. I couldn't use anything outside of those time codes. Right. Right. Okay. And that was like a few minutes worth of footage. And I narrowed it down to like a minute and a half. Okay. You know, so it was about, I think it was like two minutes and 59 seconds worth of scenes, but it was just like a reel of scenes back to back, not like edited in a trailer, just like a reel of scenes. And then I turned that and edited into an actual trailer. It's interesting that you mentioned that it became pretty much like an assistant editor for you. And now with the human process of it all, like oftentimes the bigger trailer houses like a Mark Willen and Associates, sometimes depending on the movie, they may have access to dailies while in production. That is interesting. That's how in the beginning they go. Obviously, if you're getting dailies from 
production day one, there's nothing really like you can put together because the whole movie's not put together, right? But it's just having an understanding of what's happening, the pacing, probably getting the ideas. Yeah, that's um, fascinating. We see it on, you know, all of the new trailers now, how uh, things are done and the little tricks that have occurred from this point forward. And I always was intrigued when you told us about the process that you were going through after, you know, it had been done with Watson producing this bulk of clips that you then were able to go through and piece together. But it always intrigues me that that one aspect of the human portion of it, the feelings, the emotions, because how do you tell a computer what scares people? Is right. it the screen? And they just arbitrarily saying scream here. So must be scary or crying. No, it's a, it's a good right. point. I think all those analytics, the, the audio analytics, the visual analytics yeah. of the, what Watson's determining tie into those data points, you know, but it, I mean, they did uh, the research team that put that together. Those led by John Smith. It did such an outstanding job. Yeah, it was, it was, it was awesome, man. And it, it's just intriguing to me because then now you have, you know, the aspects of what we see now and the trailization of, of classic songs or the remixing of songs to make them dark and creepy, just like when Mark Wallen and Associates did on Social Network and they did the cover of Radiohead's Creep, they just switched it up and then all of a sudden now you're hearing it on all of the trailers. <laughs> you know, yeah. like they're making true songs. They do, they do that. You know, yeah. Yeah, you know? Yeah, they so, tend to copy. Yeah, they things. tend to they copy, work. but then now they want to move on and do the next thing, right? I remember seeing the trailer for Revenant. They used his breath throughout the trailer. If you go back in, oh, and interesting. You hear it. Yeah, so it was like that. that. That heavy breathing, but they made it into a rhythm and then, yeah, you know, you hear cool. it throughout. Yeah. So all these different techniques, which I always, after I see it for the first time, I'll go back and kind of try to break down the trailer to see what they've done. And then obviously with a trailer, you never want to show everything, right? You don't want to tell people what the movie is all about. You only have probably about two and a half minutes to show them something or enough so that they're interested in going to see it. And in your experiences, have you seen a trailer where you automatically knew, like, they just showed me the whole movie? Oh, more often than not. Right. And I think it, so, so often that it puts me off yeah. certain movies. You're a person that can actually go without the movie trailer, go to a movie, check it out. Absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes I prefer to do that. Honestly. <laughs> as much as I love trailer, I don't like missing the trailers. Right. If, if I'm going to the movies, I want to get there early enough to watch all the trailers before seeing the feature film. So mm -hmm. I do like, I do like watching the trailers. My only caveat is I do not like when they spoil the film or where you feel like it's just too much information that you're like, Hey, you know, I could kind of piece together certain things that have happened. And sometimes that's the case. I feel like often that's the case. What do, you, what do you think of that? You know, there's one example that just came out in the trailer for Fast and the Furious 9. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so I've watched it, the entire series of it. I've been invested in it. And to me, the most glaring thing was the fact that this character who had been killed off all of a sudden appeared and his character Han. And so now it's like, holy, yeah, this character is back, you know, but to me, that would have been something that you want to reveal in the movie and not in the trailer. Yeah. Because now, now you're glad that he's back, but then now it's the reasoning why. And that's what you're going to be focused on in the movie. Like you already know. So within the first three minutes, if you don't know how Han 
is back from the dead, then the movie's being spoiled yes, to yeah. me. Right, right, right. We'll have to revisit this when the movie comes out and we see how they put it together. And uh, I believe it's Justin Lin who- and Sometimes left. they trick you. It's like, this is not yeah. Hans. It's his identical cousin. That's right, like, right, yeah, You know what yeah. I mean? That it's like, whoa, well, uh, but then, you know, you get like sort of hoodwinked, right? And there's all this analysis being made now, right? Because in the previous Fast and Furious series, you had a person who was the antagonist in the character that Idris Elba played and he was technically dead. So I haven't been following the series. Yeah. Is Paul Walker finally out of the series? Because <laughs> yeah, I yeah, no, like, no. It, like he had passed tragically. Rest in, in peace to him. Yeah, yeah. But like I kept seeing him in trailers. I felt like for like years later, I'm like, what is going on? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he rode literally into the sunset and, and that's how they kind of let his character go in the series. But then spoiler alert. Yeah. Well, at this point, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, then <laughs> yeah, yeah, spoiler yeah. alert. There's going to be a lot of spoiler alert. So if we start talking about something, then be yeah, sure to I pause wanna, it. And Yeah. Eventually I want to put a button. <laughs> spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's Paul Walker's character you know, was married and had a kid. And so they kind of made it like he was retiring out the game or whatever. They didn't kill him off in the Fast and Furious series. But now in F9, they're showing his wife or Toretto's sister, Mia, back. And she's kind of in the fold of the the family. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. But that was always going to be the issue for me when I saw that Han was just popping up and, you know, hugging the the main character that's played by Vin Diesel, Toretto, you know, just hugging him. And it's like, okay, now that I have so many questions. But that's something that I think they should have left out and reveal it so that once the movie came out that opening weekend, it's a super big reveal just is the reveals of Star Wars and everything else. Like go to the movie theater to find this nugget that only the moviegoers can experience. Yeah. But yeah, it, so it's it, a it good, was interesting. It's a good point because I wonder, you know, I didn't really get into it with, it was kind of, fast how the whole, whole Morgan Watson thing came about, but right. it does leave me wondering because I think Watson did such a great job of not revealing any spoilers in the scenes that it selected. So it makes me wonder, was there stuff built in that it's not pulling stuff from the third act as much, or it makes me think because, and right. then I also was conscious about that too, when I was doing the final editing of not revealing spoilers. Cause I just, I don't like that. I don't like when a film reveals too much. Right. Yeah. And it's a, an interesting point you bring. Do you really ever go into visuals in the third act or is you just at that climactic point and then you don't do the, the back end of that? They definitely show sequences like in Fast and Furious 9, you have this great, obviously it's cars, right? So you have this great sequence of them basically going straight off of a cliff. And then there's this winch that grabs onto the axle and just like kind of swings them across and because the bridge was shot off, you know? So it's one of those things is where is this in the movie now? Is this the climax just before the falling action? Well, where is it? Yeah, good call. With trailers too, you have obviously the green band, which we're all used to seeing, you know, the PG version of things or whatever. I'm interested in hearing your take on the Red Band trailers, which really wasn't a big thing when, obviously when we were growing up, but the Red Band trailers being the R-rated versions and because you have YouTube and everything like that, you're able to go directly to the adult audience. The example that I wanted to bring up was Deadpool. So when Deadpool came out with the R rating, everybody was like, oh, whoa, you know, and then the Red Band trailer came out and then it's like, you're hearing curse words, you're seeing red blood, which is a no-no for green band. They have to muddy it up. They have to desaturate the red out and all the rules that they have, the MPAA, right? To go taxi driver on it. 
Yeah, yeah. And do you, as an adult now, do you have any preference as to whether or not a green band or a red band trailer will affect your movie going experience? Oh, that's a great question. I haven't given it much thought. I like the idea of the red band trailer personally. I would want to see, because I think that's more accurate to the film itself, you know, so that doesn't personally bother me. But with that being said, I do think there's there's ways to have a green band trailer that still hooks you into the film. And I can think of when I was a kid, I remember being 12 years old, maybe 11 years old when I first saw the trailer for Pulp Fiction, but way in advance, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And I was watching like some other thing at home with my parents and some video that we rented. And then like a trailer came on and Pulp Fiction wasn't even out yet. It was like maybe like a year before it came out or something, you know, maybe it was in the film festival circuit or something. But uh, I remember I was like, what is that looks so cool. I was like, I want to see that. And my parents were like, no, no, that's not for you. That's, that doesn't look like it's for you, you know, cause I think it revealed enough things that it looks like it was going to be an intense and not appropriate for kids sort of movie. But for me, I just remember it hooking me in to feeling like, whoa, that is something so different than anything I've seen to date that, you know, it made me want to really see it. Yeah. And speaking of Quentin Tarantino, the trailer for Kill Bill famously with Uma Thurman wearing her Bruce Lee inspired um, the yellow jumpsuit. Yeah, the jumpsuit. So in the green band, right, the blood that was on the jumpsuit is black, which aligns to the black stripes that she had on the suit. And then in the red band, you see that right on her chest is the blood of the people she's just whacked with her katana, you know? So it gives you a different sense when you see like just black versus red and then her wielding a sword, your head is going to a different place. Yeah. Right. So true. Good example. These are the rules that we, you know, and and this is because I'm an adult now I'm okay with, but for my 13 year old. Yeah, no, for sure. I have kids myself and I'm always cognizant of those things. I mean, I'm a guy that got rid of cable in my house because (laughs) there was just so much stuff that my kids were just watching. And I'm like, what are you watching? You shouldn't be watching that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So then we just, I don't know if just having Netflix and YouTube is better, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, there's, there's, you know, sometimes a little bit more controls that you could set at least for young kids. Yeah. I mean, it is a good point. It's one of those things where you have the audience quadrants, right? You have your under 25, your male and female, two of the quadrants and then the overs. That's a Um, a fascinating point too, that I want to talk about for a minute, because I heard there's a very famous film executive, James Seamus ran founder of Focus Features, CEO, and produced Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, yeah. so many, uh, Brokeback Mountain, so many big films. Ang Lee. Yep. Worked a lot with Ang Lee. Yeah. And he said that when they would market films, they would always market to the fourth quadrant, which was women over, like adult women. Yeah, 25. Yeah. 25 and yeah, over. Yeah. Because he said a lot of times they would be the driving force of mm-hmm which movies were being seen. So that's what, right. that's the quadrant that they would market toward, mm. which was very successful right. for them. Yeah. That's interesting because obviously if you had that dream ticket would be hitting all four quadrants. Right. But sure. oftentimes just by the nature of what the content is, you're hitting pretty much one, Yeah, maybe two. Right. 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 There is kind of that crossover when you're talking about animated movies and things like that. And that's, a whole different story in itself because a lot of animated movies do target the adults with 
the little innuendos right. that they throw in, right? Yeah, so true. I don't honestly, I don't like that. You know, like <laughs> a lot of times, I don't, I don't like like a watching. It depends on maybe what it is and how they yeah. how they pull it off. But like, especially with my young little kids, I don't want my kids watching Pepper Pig and then there's like some weird sexual innuendos. I like right. the fact that it's a wholesome show and yeah. like that's it. Yeah, I think to the one like Puss in Boots with the catnip. You know, like okay. we we as adults knew like oh you know he was trying to get high or whatever. But okay, it, right, it right. totally was not. You know, it, yeah, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. super crazy. But yeah, they. Yeah. There have been instances where it's like, whoa. Sometimes it's like too it, right. It, it, that that line crazy. was yeah. a little too low yeah. I think, for the kids. You know, yeah. I think uh, to me, like SpongeBob SquarePants is mm-hmm. a good, that's a good, like, hey, I could enjoy it as an adult, but my kid is watching it and it's kind of fun. Like that's like a good, healthy <laughs> balance yeah, of yeah. things going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you think about it too, just veering off of the trailers for a second. But when we were growing up, right, a lot of the cartoons we saw, you look back at them and you're like- scratching your head like wow we were totally a miss of what the messaging was oh they do that on purpose yeah absolutely and i could tell you even from experience and first of all regarding the red band yeah green band just to sort of circle back yeah circle (laughs) back there um you know with my own movie when we did the trouble i was so surprised on how stringent it is to put your trailer on I too, like, they're like, you know, it got flagged so many times. They're like, okay, you could have a gun in the trailer, but cannot be pointed toward the screen, like the screen as in the audience, like, toward the audience. Like, what do you like? How does that change? Like, you know, it's like, whether it's pointed at this guy or whether it's pointed toward the camera. So there were so many little rules that mm-hmm. I was so surprised about that our distribution company on one of their lines of notes is like, Hey, make the trailer as if it's a G rated film. First of all, our film's not even rated. If it was rated, it would be an R rating mostly for a little bit of violence and language, a lot of language. But how do you make our film look like a G rated? Like I I knew what they meant, you know, they're just like, Hey, just keep it as clean as you possibly could. So we don't get flagged and, and it doesn't get released. And, you know, so that was a challenge unto itself. Yeah, I mean, Dynamic. and you think about it too, when not only in trailers, but the rules that are provided by the Motion Picture Association in that how much you can show to get that PG-13 versus R rating. It was a big deal that Deadpool was an R rated film, right? And then it was True. successful in the box office as it was because all the metrics say R ratings are not going to get that amount of money compared to if it were PG-13. But oftentimes we see in terms of, let's say, the screen time of simulated acts of violence with guns and all this stuff is even more because the R-rated film has maybe less gun violence, but more language, more stronger language, you know? So it's it's always kind of that the rules are there in place, but when you look at it as a whole, it's like the juggling act, whether or not it's better, one is better than the other, so to speak, it's blurred. You know, that, that line is just totally. I wonder how much it costs to get your film rated from the motion picture. So like, I don't know what the rules are, but I wonder what's like the exact, there's gotta be some sort of cost to submit it and then them to approve it or whatever. Yeah, that is interesting. And especially when you get those notes back and they say, well, if you cut three minutes of this sequence for an R rated to go down to PG 13, now the studio has to make that decision whether or not they want to do that or if that's even their intent, right? Some studios and movie goers want to see an R-rated film because it's an adult content thing. And so they don't want you saying 
snap, they want you to say shit. Yeah. You know, so like, nah, oh snap, but oh shit. Yeah. It's just one of those things where green band versus red band, to go back to that, it's really about who your audience is and uh, whether or not the content of your movie does say, I want to show it in the movie theater with parents there, but some teens might be there because it's PG-13. It's an R-rated film, but I want to have those parents come out and look at it and maybe parental advisory suggested bring the kids if it's not too crazy. Yeah. Teenagers even, right? I mean, you could be 16 year old, kind of have a general understanding. And it's in this day and age, we won't even go into it. Yeah. It's totally different than we Totally different, man. <laughs> now you'll see like, it looks like something like a rom-com, but like the women are doing coke before their bachelorette party or something. Yeah. You're like, what is going on? Yeah. You know? And I I'm mean, not trying to do old man talk here, but right. it's just, <laughs> sometimes there's things that's like off-putting. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Do you remember back in the day when there was this whole big thing of actually having the image of a gun on a movie poster was like a no-no? Yeah. Like erase it off. Right. And now it's like nothing. And then we have a society now too, where it's different and everything else. So not, not getting into it. Like it's the political. Yeah. So society in general. Yeah. Kind of ill. Just thinking about that. So let's get into what I call the speed ramp, a series of rapid fire questions for you to answer. You ready, Mr. Zeff? I'm as ready as I'll ever be. All right, cool. Remember, try not to take too much time. First thing that pops up in your head. Ready? All All right. What director would you most want to shadow during a production? Martin Scorsese. A memorable song in a movie. Maybe because we're still on Scorsese, uh, Jumping Jack, Flash, and Mean Streets. Good one. A childhood celebrity crush. Uh, Selma Hayek and Desperado. Who would play you in a biopic? <laughs> um... <laughs> When I was when I was younger, for some reason, people said I looked like Ashton Kutcher, <laughs> but but now it would probably be more like uh, Jason Statham. <laughs> All right, even yeah. though I like I like Jason. Yeah. All right, cool. A dream location to film. Ooh, good. Um, because I was in Cannes in May, the south of France. Awesome. All right, this is this is going to be a difficult one. Marvel or DC? Marvel. Ooh. A studio exec walks into Alphabet City Films. Who would you fall off the chair to see coming through that door? Anybody that could finance my picture. (laughs) Anybody that has the check for my next movie. Anyone that that can cut the check. Is that an acceptable answer? I'll I'll accept it. it. Favorite movie with a Bronx scene? Uh, I have to go with a Bronx tale in the, you know, with Chaz Palminteri in the, you know, the biker scene. All right. And last one, a date night to the movies with the wife. What genre of film are you watching? <laughs> we have so, <laughs> we, we have such eclectic tastes, but I will say that the last film when we have our rare date nights is we saw Danny Boyle's yesterday. Cool. And that was the speed ramp with Zef Gota. Hey, man, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again for letting me come through your spot. Stay tuned uh, for the next one. But again, go on to Film Scene to the continuation of our conversation here as we hang out at Alphabet City Film Studios in Manhattan. Thanks, Indio. Thanks again, man. Appreciate you, man. Peace. The Scene and Take podcast is brought to you by Gaia Rican Productions. This episode was recorded at Alphabet City Film Studio and edited by me, Harry Indio Ramkishin. Music licensed through artlist.io. 
hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scene and Take podcast. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to follow and favorite the podcast and get notified when a new episode is released. Follow us on Instagram and YouTube at Scene and Take Podcast, and I will chat with you on the next one.